0: How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, Consensual and Non-Consensual Realities. With this podcast, I'd like to talk about the fundamental nature of reality and provide an overarching principle by which to understand all of the phenomenon that I've described in the various episodes of this podcast under one umbrella. And essentially, what that umbrella is the idea that we exist in a consensus reality. Now in order to fully explain this idea, I'll have to unpack it. So, what does it mean by consensus? Consensus means that we exist in a consensual reality, which means that our experience of each other is fundamentally one of a consensual experience, which means that the shadow parts of our nature, the parts that we hide from ourselves, the parts that we hide or that we reject, or that we undermine or that we fundamentally abhor, these parts of our nature are hidden from view from ourselves. And therefore, In the consensual reality which we exist, they are hidden from view from others as well. Now, this principle underlies the manner by which our exchanges occur, our encounters occur, and the nature and content of our experience as far as it deals with other individuals. So, let's say you are sitting in a living room with a number of other individuals having a conversation. At some point, you develop the need to use the washroom or perhaps go outside to smoke a cigarette. And as a result of that instinct, you leave the confines of the living room, and the conversation continues. If you were to become as a fly on the wall, so to speak, and observe that conversation as soon as you leave the room and during the time that you are outside the room, what you'll find is that the content of that experience penetrates the veil of your unconscious shadow parts, so it is only in your absence that others are permitted or able to be themselves fully and completely so insofar as it represents a challenge or an undermining of your consent to the exchange. So, let's look at this more discreetly. Essentially, what I'm saying is all those pauses, all those seemingly coincidental escapes from that living room, all those times that you didn't hear what someone said, all those times that you looked away for a moment at someone outside the window, all those moments where you had to use the washroom or had to attend to something outside the room each and every one of those moments is filled with content of experience, which defies the consensual nature of the exchange. So the timing of events, the shape of the events, the way that you unconsciously seem to miss all of those episodes where things did not go according to your expectations or your consent. In the moment you exist in a world which is defined by your consent to the experience, which means that so far, insofar as you do not consent, your absence is required for the expression of meaning, according to that underlying narrative. Now, it's difficult to express this in a perfect way, but the way that I prefer to describe it is that the details of an experience are molded by the consensual nature of the exchange, the minutiae of every exchange, the body mechanics, the timing, the manner by which people fit together in a room or in the street. All of the very minor details of an exchange represent the criteria that must be shaped according to the consensual nature of the experience. Now there's another part of this story as well, which essentially is that the nature of experience and the nature of the consensual reality in which we reside is such that there's a constant effort to expand or push the limits of what you consent to. To enable a broadening of your experience to enable stepping into of each and every new level of your experience. So as your consciousness expands, there's a pressure from other people to broaden the forms and types of experience which you will consent to. And the reason for this is because there's a fundamental push in a consensual reality. Towards the goal of showing yourself in as much as you possibly can to all of the people who you are close to. Everyone wants to be known completely by those whom they have feelings for one way or the other. Everyone wants to be known by their friends and by their family and as your experience reveals the shadow nature of your being, it moves into the consensual nature of an exchange. So, this is the underlying principle, which summarizes all of the various mechanisms of experience and also describes the manner by which we escape our expectations and the manner by which our expectations govern our experience of reality. So, in as much as you desire to escape from your expectations through the various mechanisms described in these books and podcasts you're simply moving towards a greater understanding of your shadow self and as you acquire that understanding it moves into the light created by what is essentially a consensual exchange which means that you can be more present in the moment which means that you will not take outs so to speak from confrontation or from a social exchange but it also means that and there will be less inhibitory behavior in your nature. And here is the crux of the problem, which is that as your experience broadens and regressive or unwanted impulses arise, it's necessary to develop a strong understanding of what your limits are so that you can restrict the consensual nature of an exchange and the reality which follows. Now, there's more to it than that, which is that within this consensual reality, it is possible to experience distinct consensual versions of reality. As your understanding of your shadow self evolves and you become more sensitive to the consensual nature of the exchange with other individuals, you will find that there is a potentiality for an existence or a reality where the rules of social convention do not apply as you understood them prior to that self-knowledge. So, there's a risk inherent in the expansion of one's experience into realms of taboo action and action, which is not socially acceptable in a fundamental way or in accordance with one's moral compass. So, the practice of glitching and the practice of growing and a consensual reality is fundamentally a conflict between two impulses that is the impulse to grow and develop as a person and to expand one's awareness into the shadow realms of one's being. So those two impulses may conflict and there's a tension between them. So, it is only in the recognition of one's moral limits that one is able to restrict one from expanding one's awareness into realities which are fundamentally abhorrent to one's nature and to one's ultimate morality. In this episode, I will be talking about the role of the family, one's archetypal constellation and the closed social system. A social system is closed when it has a finite number of system members. Each individual in that system has a distinct archetypal constellation. That distinct archetypal constellation is rooted or grounded by the closed system which is at its root, which is to say, that it is also surrounded by conformations of open systems. The closed system at the root of the constellation has a limited archetypal vocabulary of a class. A closed social system is in equilibrium as far as it does not accept migration, which is to say, that its vocabulary of archetypes is fixed. Individuals navigate out of the social system via outs provided by other system members only. In the absence of outs, the internal narrative of the closed social system maintains the only non-consensual reality within reality as a whole. That non-consensual reality preserves an indirect ground, law-based predictability, with reactive thoughts forming the substrate. Now, with the proceeding in mind, It is possible to assert that movement within any system, be it closed or open, occurs through the four principles explained in a preceding podcast, namely, substitution and displacement, union, polarity and conservation. What this means is that, within a closed system, polarity and conservation are active rather than passive principles. Likewise, substitution and displacement and union are active as well. In practice, this means that, for example, Possession of a quality within the closed system provokes displacement and substitution of its polar opposite into another system member. Likewise, the non-consensual reality compels each system member to participate and thereby act out their impulses according to particular archetypal assignments. Thus, a closed social system becomes predominantly a pathway of affirmation. Negation is less effective in a non-consensual reality. Which is to say that the weakening of associations between one's thoughts has the effect of isolating system members who ascribe to the archetypal assignment governed by said language. In other words, one can create archetypal and spatial isolation through specialized language used internally to negate, or one can act upon one's environment to produce said isolation. Nevertheless, the existence and use of outs is a form of negation, is a privilege in a closed system which arises out of one's relationship with the archetypal alignments which produce law or rule-based compliance in the group. Anyway, that's the end of the podcast for today. In this episode, the discussion will focus on the distinct scales or reference points by which our activity attains uniformity, and the outward-inward direction of causality is established. There are four dimensions to our identity in the world which produce four scales of activity which produce uniformity. These are the components of the interface. These four are one's theory of reality, law, conventionality, context, and reactive emotionality, the nine plates. These are the four reference scales of our behavior which produce uniformity for others. How does this work? Our reactive emotionality, our responses to physical stimuli, produce in us an entangling of our subjectivity in objectivity, and promote our outward-inward direction of causality. Conventionality and our compliance with it, contexts so to speak, which is the next level, to the extent our behavior can be understood contextually, also creates an outward-inward direction of causality. Next, the law, and our compliance with it, produces in us patterns of behavior which are predictable. Finally, our theory of reality provides a schema for the prediction of others and ourselves. Thus, all of the above may produce in us orderly behavior, and make others' behavior comprehensible to us. Now, the entangling of our behavior in others occurs naturally as our internal thoughts pair preferentially with others' external postures. What this means is that others' body language can be seen to modify our internal stream of conscious experience. Why is this? because the path of active concealment, the use of negation, resisting impulses by physical expression of inhibition, all displace tension onto other socially interacting individuals, which manifests as emotional tension in their bodies, deference. To put it simply, the tension in others manifests the extent to which they will preferentially take outs which dissolve the resonant nature of the consensual exchange. The occurrence of these outs will be followed by postural releases or deferent action which reflect the unconscious desires of the first individual, drawing them back into a consensual exchange. In previous podcasts, I talked about how there are two ways that an expectation field can interact, consonance and discordance. That was however an oversimplification. Namely, every such exchange can be of two forms, transactional or relational. Transactional exchanges are suppositional and involve one person, the object, meeting the expectation of the other, the subject. Relational exchanges are contingent and involve conjoining expectations, which is to say that the two individuals meet each other's expectations at the same time. Relational are consonant and transactional are discordant, because only one individual attains their prediction. In this episode we will be discussing the relevance of the path of affirmation to assertive thinking and concealment. In this episode, we will be talking about the difference between the path of negation and affirmation as it relates to the expression of meaning. The path of negation is ultimately a path which involves the projection of a filter on others, limiting their ability to express themselves according to that particular filter. Individuals subject to that filter will find themselves in a consensual reality and from the standpoint of their expression of meaning and self will be limited except during outs to a role-based identity. When the negating individual absents themselves, only then will the other actors be able to express themselves fully. The path of affirmation also projects, but it projects an assertiveness with respect to a perception of the other it asserts what is a non-consensual reality on others to the extent that others act along the path of negation. That being said, the path of affirmation and assertiveness is to that path is contagious because once negation is undone the individual becomes accustomed to the non-consensual reality that follows. Now, further to the above, the path of negation being the path of concealment, Produces in others the involuntary concealment of their selfhood to the extent that this negation produces the consensual reality, and barring outs, which permit the actors to express themselves fully. In other words, it is in the path of negation that we project or manifest reality in accordance with an archetypal assertion. It is in the path of affirmation that we find our negation undermined and our self manifested non consensually according to a affirming narrative. Thus, Regardless of whether we follow the path of negation or the path of affirmation, our observations tailor others' behavior according to given narratives, narratives that ultimately may result in a non-consensual reality, one produced by our absence or presence respectively. Be that as it may the end result of the path of affirmation pursuant to assertive affirmation is pure and simple emotionality, a level of expression which belies concealment. Ultimately however this expression is constructed upon a perception of another and therefore is indirect ground, a self-limiting form of foundation that belies our ultimate control over the expression of meaning and the substance of reality. Now it may be true that the path of affirmation is the only genuine way of experiencing others as they experience themselves, but it is a highly self-limiting form of expression and one that belies individual identity in pursuit of the group. For in accepting the assertive affirmation of others you undermine the individuality which precedes and induces the filter of negation in its place is a form of identity which fuses the two halves of self and which forces one to accept a non-consensual reality composed of others expectations which is really the crux of the problem because it means accepting the solidity and uniformity of a reality which is objective although the path of affirmation is certainly attractive and perhaps even more honest for the self and expression, it is one not without the trappings of a physical view of reality based upon set rules and clear laws. It also represents a reality in which individuals are disconnected from their archetypal constellations in favor of a blending of the non-consensual realities of dualistic identities. In this episode, we will be discussing closed thought, supposition, law-giving and the consensual reality. In previous episodes we talked about how reality is by and large consensual to the extent that it mobilizes our consent to the exchange. That is to say, in the interplay between individuals spatially interacting, consent is activated by the postural release, by the giving in to the expectations of another, by the acting out of deference. Postural releases are motions that shift an individual from a discordant posture or posing, or idiosyncratic one, To one which is consonant to the expectations of the other social participant. This may mean looking away to diffuse social tension, or it may mean making a joke, or it may mean simply acting out the expectations of the other participant. But the most likely form is a reaction which meets the expectations or predictions of the other participant. This could mean conjoined expectations, expectation matching, or it could mean acting unconsciously to benefit the other participant. Now, in the process of rationalizing oneself, exploring one's thoughts about this or that, synthesizing those thoughts or rationalizations into a reductive schema or web of associations, may have the effect of unwinding the personal from the memories, but what it cannot do is eliminate the personal inherent to them. I can redefine my memories a hundred ways, filter them through a dozen podcasts. But the moments associated with those podcasts retain the traces of the identity which underlies them. For example, in the classification scheme or web of associations constructed out of my memories, I may expand one concept out of the fabric of my eccentricity. But the vacuum created by my creativity, the archetypes, which might be filled a thousand times, can be sealed off by a single eccentric similarity with some other social participant. Let me give you an example. Imagine person one loves autumn and person two loves autumn. Now imagine that person one discovers that his love of autumn can be reduced to a love of cool air and a love of fleshy tones of color. That person can thus reductively distinguish those feelings into a thousand constituent feelings, but the moment that he meets two he will immediately find a gateway between one and two, follows, regardless of these deconstructions to put it in more complete terms, although nature abhors a vacuum, it would much prefer to plug it with something it has, as opposed to something new. The same goes for the creation of new archetypes and narrative. Now, further to the above analysis, we can say that we exist in a consensual reality to the extent that our consent is mobilized by the release of tension, created by our submission to the will of another, the expectations of another but we can also say that our absence is required by the expression of certain facets of others being, the consensual requiring we excuse ourselves for the expression as opposed to repression. We can say that in our absence, that expression manifests the tension that our consensual experience dissipates. This tells us that the cues that we take from others, and our contingency upon them that is, the extent to which we act on others through indirect ground, or a perception of the other determine our reality. Outside our consent is a panoply of behaviors, benign, neutral, and repugnant. But within our consent, marked out by the incisive suppositions, rules, laws, provided by those upon which we build a perception to act, it is those cues we take that define the substance of our reality. Be all that as it may, The tension preserved by the non-consensual reality running parallel to this consensual one we take for granted is constructed out of our inhibitions and the negating thoughts that describe them. For example, in the shadow of your action hides a deep-seated fear of something. To the extent that that fear impedes your action, inhibits your action, such are closed or suppositional thoughts, which you telegraph to your colleagues and to the substance of their consensual reality through cues but parallel to that consensual reality is a reality which is non-consensual, which defies your inhibitions and the behaviors that comprise them. Nevertheless, the mere fact that you telegraph cues to those who comprise your consensual reality says nothing about whether they are taking those cues and acting upon them. The mere fact of your consent does not compel the consent of others. Your consensual reality may look very different than theirs. I reiterate, Consensual reality does not mean objective. It is consensual because there is some overlap in the substrate of two people's experience, but that substrate is the barest kind, merely the body movements which produce parallel consensual, deferent, pathways, upon which we build our perceptions. We exist in proximity to each other, that is all. In this episode, we will be talking about the choice. To start off, It is certainly true that reality is consensual, to the extent that we maintain our inhibitions, to the extent that we exist in a dualistic consciousness which is divided against itself. This division promotes the separation of our consciousness into a space of internal segregation. However, to some degree, our ability to earn the acceptance of those who care about us, ensures that the segregation of our consciousness need not be fully divorced from the unity of common mind, God-consciousness, or omniscient, resplendent unity of consciousness. It is in the possession of conscience that we distinguish, assume the mantle of dualism and divide itself. Suffice it to say, in between the execution of an action and its inception, in the shadow of our intentions, is a place of opening, a place of totality, wherein resides a momentary glimpse of our connection to all others. Open thoughts are reactive thoughts they are anticipated thoughts, which come unbidden from us in these moments of distraction. If we can exist outside ourselves in between our intentions, in the shadow of our impulses, we can see the connection we hold to all consciousness and things. The most frightening thing that someone can tell you is that you are accepted, entirely, for in that moment, the consensual reality becomes the unitary reality, the reality where your entanglement with countless others renders in you the fire of living passion. At least, for those whom such things are foreign, for those who hold to a refuge of individuality. But of course, such a place is not free of individuality, it is merely a place of folds upon folds, of people wound together like strings of twine. To explain it another way, a consensual reality compels you to absent yourself rather than accept those around you, because it would mean accepting yourself in the process. Your choice is clear, in the moment, to compel the alienation of others to preserve your self-negation, or to accept yourself and see others as they truly are. Imagine for a second that all the loneliness and alienation in this world is your doing, a product of your genuine desire to hold anonymity from God-consciousness. Imagine that the segregation of woman in Mullah-controlled Afghanistan, Imagine that the segregation of people by race, gender, or orientation is all the result of your refusal to accept that we are all one. The multiplicity forged in the shadow of the impulse is mere symptom of a larger alienation, an alienation we impose on ourselves. That refuge is a place of clarity, but the alienation it imposes is a disease whose only cure is love. Can it be that refuge is ungodly? Can it be that our self-segregation must come to an end of its own accord? I don't know the answer, but I have to believe there is a place for both quiet reflection and quiet unity, a recognition that we may be all, but it is a quality acceptable to be one. In this episode we will be discussing how to manipulate the system to transform a non-consensual reality to a consensual one and back again. In the second half, we will be discussing how manifestation works in practice. Keeping in mind the nature of the reality in which we find ourselves. Now, in the last few episodes, we've been discussing how, in the final experience of the system, our thoughts are made manifest. In fact, it is as if every thought pairs, open thought to open thought. But, the experience of those manifested thoughts can be drawn out by minutes, hours, and even days. What begins is a simple perception of the other, maybe create a narrative which ensures its fulmination. Regardless of how malignant or benign, setting in motion a chain of events which could be catastrophic. Let me give you an example. Supposing, for example, you watched a true crime documentary, and wondered what it would feel like to kill someone. This thought could conceivably create a narrative, using your social network to produce a confrontation so dangerous that it leads to an unintended homicide. Such is the nature of manifestation. It cares not whether you desire the outcome only that you thought it. Now, the effectuation of such a narrative is contingent on the dull awareness of your projection by other participants. They may not know they are leading you incidentally to a homicide, but they cannot seem to help themselves. Thus, it is important to recognize that our thoughts, each and every one of them, conceived in the shadow of an impulse, is potent, and once we become cognizant of our manifestation, losing self-consciousness in the process we fall prey to the inertia of our darkest desires and shadow self. Thus, our consensual reality may collapse under the weight of our lack of inhibition, the dualism of conscience eroded by egoistic urges. When this happens, losing oneself to the manifestation which can extend over drastically longer time periods, making our self-consciousness irrelevant given our lack of perception with regards to the content of our manifestations, torn asunder by time, delay and egoism. The result is the collapse of consensual reality and the resurrection of a non-consensual experience in its place, one defined not by self-negation but by affirmation no matter how destructive or violent. When this happens, the experience of open-thought pairings transition to dialectical pairings, thoughts which don't release tension but capture it. In this form, The resulting reality is one which negates your good intentions and undermines your conscience, leaving your shadow self-exposed to the cues of others. In this state, you may find that you are the one segregated, trapped by a perception that you are inherently undesirable, untrustworthy, odious. But, though others avoid you now, your manifestations instilling disgust, stemming from your shame, there is a way back. It begins with sending cues regarding raising of a new consensual reality and experience, constructed upon mirroring the avoidance which you have become a target of. It begins with avoidant postures and posing, deliberate limitations on eye contact, focused methodical actions, ritualistic pauses, controlled deliberate movements, limitations on your interest, in others, your care, of others. I call this resurrection of consensuality the method, or praxis, a kind of postural, vocal, facial manipulation of expectation matching and fulfillment. In this place, it becomes possible to dial back the trap of others' perceptions, stereotypes, and judgments. In this place, one can dig a new hole within which to place your head, the earth freeing it from a guillotine created out of your own manifestation of dark desires. So, it begins in consensus. It ends in the consensual it passes through God-consciousness and ends entangled in karmic retribution, such is the way of a reality constructed out of what we make of it. In this episode, we will be talking about masculine sexuality in the context of deference. It is true to say that ordinarily masculinity is enclosed in femininity, which is to say that masculine sexuality is anticipated by femininity in the interchange between the tonic and the dominant. Thus, the masculine achieves substance by meeting the anticipatory expectations of the feminine. In this case there is consent or acquiescence to the exchange and it produces a consensual reality. But this is not always the case. When the expression of masculine sexuality goes unanticipated, the result of force, it produces a non-consensual reality. This is an important distinction for two reasons. It is important, first, because when male sexuality is anticipated it forms one part of an exchange of confidence, expectation matching and attention conditioning. When male sexuality goes unanticipated it is the result of an incursion of one person into the body space and physical territoriality of the second. This links the hormonal balances of the two individuals through the biological mechanism of deference. In other words, Relevant sexual hormones such as testosterone are regulated by these incursions into the physical territoriality of the second individual. Frequent incursions into another's bodily integrity, physical territoriality activates the body's sex drive and secondary sex characteristics. But whether we are talking about an anticipated or unanticipated incursion, the principle of displacement follows such an encounter. In the case of a consensual encounter, deference follows that is, the second individual will meet the expectations of the first individual unconsciously benefiting him in unrelated ways. The unanticipated incursion produces spatial displacement. Displacement may cause substitution of another individual through body switching to experience the displaced experience. In many cases this preserves the status quo of individual identity for the actor. Now, the social contract of the state, its monopoly on force, plays a role in the anticipated and unanticipated, i.e. consensual and non-consensual reality which follows consensual and non-consensual sex acts. This means that through the regulation of consent in the context of abortion, battery, assault and sexual assault law, the state effectively outlaws the non-consensual, limits the unanticipated incursion into the bodily integrity of the second individual. This means that the social marketplace of confidence in exchange for consent, expectation matching and attention conditioning is the only way in a so regulated state to obtain up regulation of testosterone and to regulate one's sexual drive. Effectively, what I am saying is, the state's monopoly on force constrains self-regulation of sexuality. The state's legal power to regulate the criteria for consent further undermines individual autonomy. Finally, the marketplace of confidence, attention, for sex becomes the only way to achieve any measure of social autonomy. Finally, legislation or precedent incorporating a reasonable fear of physical harm, such as in peace bond legislation, further undermines autonomy by constraining the threat of incursion into the physical territoriality of another, without any such follow-through. Suffice it to say, The state's monopoly on force may extend to the threat of force through such coercive measures as peace bonds of other criminal sanctions for the threat of force. This is important as the upregulation of testosterone follows from the threat of incursion not the incursion itself. In summary, a state which regulates consent and the threat of force is a state which limits the biological and sexual integrity of its male citizens. A state which does not regulate is a state which limits the biological and sexual integrity of its female citizens. Both options undermine the consensual nature of the reality which follows. And this of course all follows from the appreciable physical advantage of men in the application of force. In this episode, we will be building upon the concepts explored in the last few episodes, specifically with regards to consent and the consensual reality. As explained in the last podcast, control over one's personal autonomy through the mechanism of consent to an exchange, determines the nature of the reality in which the participant inhabits. If the power of consent, manifesting in personal autonomy, is divided by gender identity or some other distinguishing characteristic such as class, this determines the nature of the reality which that participant inhabits. For example, If the feminine possesses the power of bodily integrity through consent, through the mechanism of precedent or legislation, enforced by the state through its monopoly on force, then they possess the ability to impose a consensual reality as an overlay upon the experiences of others. Practically what this means is that the reality inhabited by an empowered participant, determined by their sole or preferential authority to consent to an exchange, allows them to permit convergence only when it fits the consensual reality they inhabit, meaning it must be consistent with the identity held voluntarily by the so empowered. To explain it another way, imagine that two individuals are talking. Now, person A, who is empowered by consent, experiences a conversation and sequence of events we will call one. Person B, experiences a sequence of events we will call two. Now, The outcome of these two exchanges will fit sequence 2 for both participants only to the extent that it is consistent with sequence 1. Any multiplicity or divergence will resolve to the benefit of person A, according to sequence 1. So, as an example, let's say that person B recalls a jovial conversation of approximately 5 minutes in duration. Person A recalls a 2-minute conversation, followed by a pause during which time she went for a cigarette and joked with another co-worker for 15 minutes, before returning, and concluding a three-minute conversation. Now, of course for these two narratives to coexist there must be folds in time, and lost time, for one of the participants, which follows part and parcel from our discussions about the nature of time, in earlier podcasts. Thus, the power to consent, is the power to shape the common experience, the intersubjectivity which results from contradictory subjectivities. As explained in an earlier podcast, we exist in proximity to others, not in truly the same reality. For person B, reality is non-consensual or imposed upon him, the result of his shadow parts. For person A, the power to consent feeds an inward-looking reality, which fulfills the consciously held identity of the actor. She who controls consent determines the consensual reality. She shapes what we see. Determines the points of intersection. Realities are determined as between pairings. Two distinct realities can exist side by side, one consensual and one non-consensual. In this episode we will be discussing how retrocausality is the product of the transition from consensual to non-consensual realities. To begin, typically, to the extent we have control of our bodily integrity and consent—that is we have freedom or autonomy to not consent to an exchange—we exist in a consensual reality. In so existing, there are outs in our behavior which permit folds in time, lost time, to the extent we do not consent. What this means is that our intersection points with others, give them outs, to the extent we do not consent. This manifests as divergent narrative or sequential paths associated with two consciousnesses. In other words, we may experience a five-minute conversation as a consensual reality, but our conversation partner may experience it as a two-minute conversation followed by a pause, during which time they took a 15-minute smoke break and chatted with a colleague or co-worker, before concluding with a three-minute conversation. But we may only remember the five-minute conversation as one sequence. Thus, outs are created by consensual realities, permitting divergence of two streams of consciousness. Now, in addition to producing outs, consensual realities are comprised of circumscribed behavior, limited to our conscious self attributions. But consensual realities are also the source of our internal mind, which is created by the non intersection of our impulses with others' behavior. Thus, folds in time, outs, and the internality of introspection are the product of a consensual reality. Further, the state has the power to impose a non-consensual reality on us, through its agents and their monopoly on force. Their ability to impose this non-consensual reality means that we lose the ability to self-censor our impulses, circumscribe our nature and behavior, and preserve the introspection of our internal mind. What this means is that the non-consensual possess or unfolds time. It eliminates the non-intersection to the extent of the state's willingness to impose force or act against our consent. Thus, time, for non-consensual actors, those privy to the monopoly on force, runs at a different speed than for consensual actors. In the intersection between this consensual space and the non-consensual space of force actors, we see retrocausality. We see this possibility because the mechanism of deference whether normal or retrograde, induces behaviors which run contrary to the ordinary arrow of time. Thus, the most commonplace to experience a retrocausal event is when the consensual is replaced by the non-consensual. In the transition between consensual and non-consensual, the internal becomes external, and the regular becomes retrograde. In effect, Deference runs just a little bit faster than the consensual. When there is no enclosure open thoughts pair freely according to attention. When there is enclosure then the internal thought of the closed thinker pairs with the internal thought of the mirroring thinker. In this episode, we will be talking about control over consent and the imposition of a non-consensual reality. When the consensual reality dissolves, due to the withdrawal of one actor's consent, all actors become force actors. In previous episodes we talked about how control over the conditions of consent determines the power to impose a consensual reality by participants in a social exchange. Although that was a correct assertion, it was an incomplete picture of the puzzle. Although the power over the conditions of consent gives one the ability to impose a consensual reality, The power to ultimately deny consent represents the power to impose a non-consensual reality. The moment that a consensual actor determines that consent will not be given under any conditions, that individual becomes a force actor, imposing a non-consensual reality through their projections. The basis for these projections is physical territoriality. Thus, the agency of consent only remains meaningful when an individual generates reasonable or possible conditions for the social contract. The moment that an individual withholds consent under any conditions, they become a force actor, capable of holding physical territoriality and imposing a non-consensual reality on others. What does this mean? It means that they then possess the ability to effectuate the inhibited, to bring out the shadow parts of our being, and no longer intersections conditional on consent to the exchange the process by which intentionality is made manifest within the moments between time as manifestations of the shadow parts of our being within the context of the non-consensual reality produced by the now force actor is through substitution and or displacement that is to say that force actors have the ability to generate displacement and substitution as is product of their social interactions further to spatial territoriality. Manifestation of given intentionality is determined through the process of substitution further to the displacement generated by force actors. In effect, cooperative effort to displace an existing intention generates substitution of another according to the social tension created by a sequence of intersections. Emotional lability follows each displacement event this emotional lability can be channeled into a given rationalization of higher tension according to the substitutions made in the thought pairings of the individual. To put it another way, the now force actor generates displacement further to their deference holders' intentions, and the loss of an internal space for consciousness due to the loss of the consensual reality, promotes integration of those thoughts produced by higher levels of social tension. In effect, a person becomes a steam whistle, through which the coal generating the heat forces the narrative stream through. The result of this is a new social equilibrium for the social actor. Put in another way, imagine if someone's social network simply stopped sending them P waves and converted all their P waves to S waves. These S waves would generate a new equilibrium or stretch the equilibrium which the actor may be accustomed to. The end result of this process is the generation of a new identity beyond the purview of their prior equilibrium, borne by a sudden reversal of polarity. The gradual unworking of the person's consent to the reality follows the shrinking, so to speak of their interactions with others in the ordinary course, leaving them isolated and alienated from their past equilibrium. The result of this process is the loss of one's social network and elimination of the synchronization of their bodily rhythms. In time, the isolation they now find themselves in is symptomatic of a dysregulation of their emotions and a full-scale appropriation of their identity. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.